I got to tell you, from where I stand, one of, one of my favorite things to do, and it happens most Sundays, not every Sunday, but most Sundays. I love it when I kind of close up my work on Saturday night, which is usually I go pretty late, and I say, I cannot wait to share this message with you guys. So this is one of those weeks I just cannot wait, so I won't waste any more time. And I will welcome you to week six. This is week six of an eight-week series. This is the first time I'm telling you how long this is going to go on. So for those of you who like that closed loop, now you can close your loop, eight-week series that we're calling Starting Point. So let me just give you a little bit of a sort of a reminder of what we're doing here. In the series, we've been working on the answer to the question, what if we could start over with our faith? What if we could start over with an adult faith? Because most of us had an original starting point of faith when we were children. And and we got that from a grown-up, a pastor or a minister or a priest or a rabbi or someone else came along and they were sort of in, in cahoots with our parents and they said, okay, here, believe this. And we were kids and we said, Uh, okay, and that's what we believed, right? We believed whatever our parents told us to believe, but then we all got older. And and for some of us, not all of us, some some of us have retained a childhood faith, some of us haven't, but as we got older, we started to notice this gap between the things that our parents told us and then the things that we experienced as we started to live a life in the real world. And yeah, some people never really took a close look at real life and just held on to whatever their faith was. And if you were able to do that, that is just phenomenal. But in the current moment in which we live, questioning faith has become very standard. In fact, on on TikTok, and again, I'm not advocating everybody should go on TikTok. I'm not really sure what people are doing with TikTok yet. But I will tell you this, that on TikTok, there's a lot of talk about people who've fallen away from the evangelical movement, people who've fallen away from their faith. They, they talk about this all the time. So it's becoming very popular. I think there are 20 billion people signed up on TikTok now. That is a lot of people. Is that right? Can't even be. There are 20, not can't be 20, but maybe it's 2 billion. So 2 billion people on TikTok. That's a lot of people. There aren't 20 billion people in the world. So anyway, but it's becoming very popular. There's a lot of people hearing about this. And so it, it's hard to ignore, even, even if you're very spiritual, it's hard to ignore. Now, other people were raised to be or, or have just gotten this way over time to be more critical about things. And, and, you know, I was raised in a place where we question everything. And then going on to law school, you learn to question everything. And so you get very critical and you can get critical over your faith. And if you're critical, you also notice this gap between the childhood faith you had and your adult understanding of the world. And Some people just walked away from faith on purpose. They intentionally walked away from faith and walked away from God because the world convinced them that you're just wrong, that this just doesn't exist. And then there's also this, you're busy. And you have school if you're a student. You have work if you're a person who works. You have things to do at home. You have a family to raise. You have children to teach or you have a social life and you just can't, fit it in. You just don't have time or or margin for God and God's community because our lives have gotten so busy. And that is a fact of modern life. And and you probably thought about it and said, okay, I'll I'll walk away for now, but if there's a God, I can always go back to him. I mean, he's always going to be there, right? But the truth is for many people, you didn't go back. You just went on with adult life. And You experienced the adult experiences and and you did your best to ignore that gnawing, nagging, empty feeling and, and uncertainty that accompanies 
a life lived without faith. It's, it's very easy to ignore the, the lack of faith because you can keep yourself so busy. You don't have to focus on it. So that's why we ask the question, well, what would it look like if you just started over? Now, if you missed any of these messages, I encourage you, please, um, you can go to our website, hammockstreetchurch.com, pull down the sermons. You can watch the sermons there. It's on the YouTube channel. You can check it out through the app. Catch up if you like. We'd appreciate that. You'd probably find it helpful. So anyway... Today, we're continuing on in this series and our discussion about an adult starting point. So I want to start off by talking about something that we all have in common. This is kind of going to get us started for our conversation today. And the thing that we have in common is our propensity to bargain with or make deals with God. Our propensity to negotiate with God. And we're calling this message Amazing. Amazing. So let's pray, and then we can get cracking. Father God, again, thank you. Thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for allowing us the freedom to question, the the freedom to explore, the freedom to dig in and see, God, can you really be trusted? Are you really giving us the truth? You really have our best interests at heart. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that uh, you would keep our hearts and minds open, that we would come to you with a little bit of skepticism, but also with an open heart that will change if we're convinced. Because God, we love you. We thank you for being there for us and guiding us and blessing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a man was driving in midtown Manhattan one Tuesday morning. He was trying to find a parking spot. If you've ever tried to park a car in New York City, you know that it is not easy to find a parking spot in New York City. Now, he had a 9 a.m. job interview, and he was rushing around trying to find a spot, and it was already 8.50, and he started to get really nervous because if he didn't get that spot, he couldn't get up to the interview, and he wouldn't get the job. And even though he wasn't a particularly religious man, he started to pray. Here was his prayer. He said, Lord, I know that I don't really pray very much. And God, I understand that I only go to church when somebody forces me. But God, I really need this job. And if you'll open up a parking space for me, I promise, I promise I'll commit my life to you. I'll pray every day, two times. And I'll never miss a weekend at church ever again. And then at that exact moment, a spot opens up. Right in front of the building, the man needed to be him. So he stopped his prayer mid-sentence, pulled his car into the spot, turned up to God and said, "Ah, never mind, I found a spot. You have to admit we've all done some version of that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because that would be embarrassing. I don't want to embarrass you, but we've all done that. All of us have said things like, God, if you will, I promise I'll always, right? Haven't we done that? We've made these bargains with God. People in every religion negotiate with their God. In fact, people who don't even believe in God negotiate with God. I've been in hospitals visiting people and standing at bedsides and praying with the believer in the hospital room. And then the person next to me or next in the next bed over who aren't believers at all will say, could you pray for me too, please? That's negotiating with a God you don't believe in. C.S. Lewis um, 
explain the phenomenon when he said this. Once people stop believing in God, the problem is not that they'll believe in nothing. Rather, the problem is they'll believe anything. Nature abhors a vacuum. And that's a problem. When you take God out of the picture, as Blaise Pascal said, it leaves a God-shaped vacuum. There's, there's, a, there's a space that something is going to rush in and fill. And it's going to be some version of a God, but not the true God. Now, here's the other thing I know about all of us. And I have not interviewed all of you, but I know this to be true. We don't keep our end of the deal. When we make a bargain like that with God, we don't keep our end of the deal. Because... You negotiate it, and then it works out in your favor. And what do you do? You do what the guy did in my story. You say, whew, whew, I got lucky. I was really lucky. When it works out in our favor, we don't follow through with our promise. Well, here's what's up with bargaining with God. When we bargain with God, we make two foundational assumptions. Okay, the number one assumption is that God knows you exist. If you've ever negotiated with God... You have a lot of faith, actually, more faith than you thought, because you have faith that God knows you exist. Because if you've ever tried to negotiate with God, you you believe that God knows your name. Hi, God, this is Russell. We haven't talked in a while. And you believe God knows your circumstances. Well, God, you know, I know you haven't seen me. And if I'm asking God to do something like that, it's like I, I know on some level God cares about me. I mean, that requires a lot of faith. All right, that's the first assumption, but it's assumption number two that we're going to focus on today. Because if you've ever tried to negotiate with God, you believe in your heart, you believe that you have something God wants. I'll tell you what, God, if you'll do blank for me, I'll do blank for you. God, if you'll do blank for me, I'll I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll, I'll donate money, whatever. That's what we do. You're assuming you have something God wants. But as you think about embracing the Christian faith or jumping in deeper to the Christian faith, you need to understand something. Christianity is different. Christianity stands apart from every other faith system in the world. That's one of the things I love about faith in Jesus Because it is so different from any other faith that I've ever seen and so much better than the things I used to think about Christianity. And quite candidly, the the things that many Christian churches teach, it's so much better than all of that. It meant to be a person of faith. It's that God doesn't want something or anything from you. Do you understand? To be a person of faith, God does not want one thing from you. God doesn't negotiate with you because he doesn't want something from you. Actually, it's the opposite. God wants something for you. And that is a really big difference. That's the reason you can't negotiate with God. The reason you can't negotiate with God is you don't have anything God needs. God has everything. You don't have anything that God wants. And when you read the story of Jesus, and then you read about the people who came after Jesus and what they said about Jesus, it becomes really clear. The Christian faith is not, did you get that? Is not you getting something from God because God wants something from you. God does not want something from you. God is God. And because he loves you, God wants something for you. 
For the follower of Jesus, there's one word that summarizes this whole concept, that clarifies what we're talking about, this whole notion. And that word is what? Grace. Odds are you've experienced grace in your life at one time or another. You ever been standing at the checkout counter and you're a few dollars short or you can't find your credit card or whatever and the stranger in line behind you gives you his card or her card and says, here you go. They pay the cashier for you. That's grace, pure grace. They didn't need to do it, but they did it. Grace is called unmerited favor. It means you get something good, a favor that you didn't earn, unmerited, unmerited favor. It means you get something that you absolutely did not earn and you absolutely did not deserve. Now, in our human experience, we see grace show up from time to time. But in Christianity... Grace is not a time-to-time thing. Grace is a central thing. Grace stands at the epicenter of our faith in Jesus. Grace is what drives everything as it relates to Jesus and as it relates to becoming a follower of Jesus. So think about this. Unmerited means unconditional, means without condition. It means that Favor is dispensed to you without any precondition. In other words, you get grace without having to do anything to earn it, without having done anything to justify it. Grace is all about the person who is dispensing the grace, showing the grace, giving the grace. It is never about the person who's receiving the benefits of grace. Unmerited favor means simply you are getting something For nothing. Unmerited favor means that if there is any cost to be borne, it will be borne by the other person, by the person that is dispensing the grace that we don't deserve. And with grace, there's also this. A person who receives the grace doesn't take credit. You don't take credit when you get a present. When you receive grace... The person who dispenses the grace, who gives the grace, that's the hero of the story. They're always the one who gets the credit. And that is a central dynamic to Christianity. And that dynamic sets Christianity apart, or at least it should set Christianity apart, from every other religion in the world. That dynamic sets God, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, apart from all of the other gods in all of the pagan religions. And even the modern religions. Grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. God's grace is given to us because of God's character. God gives us grace because of his character, not because of our character. God doesn't show us grace because of anything good in us. God gives us grace because of everything good in him. Grace is getting good things that we don't deserve. Now, by the way, just I want to throw this in here so you can differentiate the two. Mercy, which is related to grace, mercy is not getting the bad things that you do deserve. That's why you understand how that works in lots of contexts, in 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 the criminal context. If somebody deserves to go to prison and the judge says, no, you know what? You've got a family situation. You need to, I'm not going to send you to prison. That's the judge showing them mercy. They, in my hypothetical, they deserve to go. The judge shows them mercy and says, you're not going to get the bad thing you deserve. But grace is where we're focused and grace stands at the center of Christianity. Now, in the New Testament... 
there's an explanation of God's grace that really brings this point home. And if you've been in church for a little while, you're probably familiar with the story I'm going to tell. But it's actually a fairly complicated piece of scripture. You probably didn't know that. But in this piece of scripture, the Apostle Paul describes the importance of grace and the centrality of grace. That's the focus point in Christianity. So for anyone looking for an adult starting point for their faith in Jesus, this is the focus point. Grace is the focus point. And we can find this story in a letter. It's a letter written to the community of believers in the ancient Greek-Roman port city known as Ephesus. Ephesus, by the way, today is known as Salchuk, which is located in modern-day Turkey. Now, we know this letter as Paul's letter to the Ephesians, or the book of Ephesians in our New Testament. So first let me give you a little bit of background, and then we'll dig into it. Now, in Paul's day, Ephesus was a very important, very busy, very profitable port city. Over the years, it is no longer, it hasn't, it's stopped being a port city because the the port filled up with, with sand, with silt. And so today, it's actually about three miles back from the water, from the Aegean Sea. Although there is a report out there that they're trying to redig the, the port, redredge the port to sort of revitalize Ephesus. So, the book of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, was a letter that Paul wrote to the Christian community in that location. And it was distributed to all the other Christian communities in the region as well. It's funny how that works. Now we get an email and you can forward the email to a countless number of people instantly. Back then, he would send a letter. You would send a letter to one place. And if the letter was important and people wanted to see the letter, somebody would have to take it physically and travel to the next place to hand it off. Travel by horseback, by donkey, by walking, whatever it was. That's the way it used to work back then. Now, we've talked about this before, too. When we first meet the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, we were introduced to him by his Hebrew name. Okay, so his Hebrew name in Hebrew is Shaul. Shaul. But we have anglicized his Hebrew name, which is basically taken the Hebrew name and turned it into English language. What have we anglicized it to? The name what? Saul. Very good. Bible scholars. Now, Paul is merely Saul, but given a Greco-Roman flavor. Okay, so that's kind of how we get that. We've heard it taught many times that Saul became Paul. It's not exactly accurate. He didn't really become anything. He was always Shaul at home and Paulus in his community. That was the custom of his day. And basically, that's the same custom that we have today in a lot of places. People who grow up between cultures, like children of recent immigrant parents, are often known by two given names. One in the native language of the parents, and one in the native language of where they live now. So I have a friend whose name is Carlos, whose given name is Carlos, but we know him as Charlie. Okay? The Irish name Ian The Latin name, Juan, those are both anglicized to what? John. Okay, that's it. All right. Anyway, when we meet Saul, when we meet Paul, he was persecuting the church. He was going after the believers in Jesus. We can read about that in Acts 7. And in Acts 7, Paul's part of this angry crowd, and they're they're stoning Jesus' disciple Stephen to death. 
They're dropping big rocks on him and trying to kill him. And Paul's standing there encouraging them, saying, yeah, kill that guy. So Paul's life's work at the time was to do just that, was to root out the members of the Jesus-following community, arrest them, punish them, make sure they never went back to this Jesus guy ever again. But in a really, I think it's just a magnificent display of God's very sublime sense of humor. God took this persecutor of his people, Paul, and God made Paul one of his people. And indeed, God took Paul and made him one of the most famous of his people. Paul became the Jesus follower who planted more Jesus following communities in the early ancient world than anybody else. Paul wrote this letter. And he wrote this letter while he was in prison. He was imprisoned in Rome in about 65 AD, which is roughly 30 years after Jesus's earthly life and ministry had ended. It was roughly 30 years after, 35 years after Jesus had ascended to heaven. It was during a time that there were still a lot of people alive who'd been with Jesus, who had seen Jesus, who had experienced Jesus's ministry. So that's the time in which Paul wrote this letter. And though Paul addressed the letter to the Ephesian community, to the believers in Ephesus, this letter is written for all of us. And it's in this letter that Paul gives us some phenomenal insight into what it means to fully understand and appreciate God's amazing grace. All right, that's the setup, okay? So now we're going to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he says to the Ephesians. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions, and sin. So Paul just comes right out of the box, really aggressive. All right, if anybody fights or boxes, you know, that's one of the techniques is instead of hanging back and seeing what's happening, you attack real quick. That's what he does. Comes real aggressive. Says, you guys are all dead in your sins. By the way, dead in this context doesn't mean physically dead, right? Because they were listening to him. It meant you're all dead to God. It meant you have absolutely no relationship with God. That's what dead means in this context. And then the next few verses, which we're going to go through quickly, Paul kind of talks about how far we all are from God or they all were from God and the way they even felt, failed to meet their own sort of self-imposed standards. So here's how Paul says that. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, that's the spirit of Satan that's in our world. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so that's Paul saying, I know, listen, you guys are all dead. You're not alone. A lot of us are dead here. That's kind of what he's saying. But then he kind of hits a transition point. He, he pivots. Okay, this is a pivot here. But it's interesting, in our typical English translations, and there are a lot of English translations of the Bible, by the way, don't fall for the story that the English translations are less accurate than the earlier translations. They're not. They're just different. Every translation goes back to the original and back to the manuscripts. It doesn't just translate off the previous translation. So you're not playing this continual game of telephone when you tell a story and then it keeps gets changed down the line. It's not the way Bible translation works. But in our English translations, you can kind of miss how important the pivot is because in English, it's different than in Greek. The transition words, when translated into English, kind of get buried in the middle of the sentence and you lose it. But the Greek language 
It's really different. The Greek language is very specific, very scientific. And so in the Greek language, when something was really important, it was said first. It was put at the front of the sentence. So for these verses that will follow, we're going to go to a little bit different translation. We're going to go to a translation that's called the New American Standard Version. Now, the thing about the New American Standard Version is it's much more of a word-by-word translation, so it keeps closer to the Greek word order. That's a good thing. Uh, kind of the downside is it gets fuzzy because a lot of times when you keep to a, bat, to a word order you're not used to, it gets confusing. But we'll get there. So here's the next verse that reflects Paul's emphasis. In the Greek, Paul starts off with this. But God. That's what he starts off with. But God. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were far from God like everybody else in the world. But God. Okay? But God. Paul said, you had a problem, but God. Now, the reason that this is important is that the traditional way of praying to God and the traditional way of approaching God seems to be this. Hey, God, I've done some bad things, but I'm going to do better from now on. God, I haven't talked to you in a while, but you'll be hearing from me more from now on. God, I really messed up this time, but I... But I, okay, that's what we do now. But Paul is saying something opposite. Paul's saying, okay, that's how you've done it in the past. But God, but God has something new for you. When you realize that you have transgressed, when you realize that you've disobeyed God, when you realize that you're dead in your connection to God, when you realize that you're far from God, when you realize that you need to start over with God, you need to realize it's not a but I that comes next. It's a but God that comes next. And here's what Paul said. We'll continue on with this verse four. But God being rich in mercy. Okay? So now it's saying, but God, God's going to act. It's going to tell us why he's going to act. God being rich in mercy. God had so much mercy that he had mercy to spare. He's rich in mercy. He's got enough mercy to give mercy away. He's got mercy to spare. Paul understood the mercy of God. Paul understood That God should have killed Paul for what he was doing, for trying to destroy the church. Paul recognized that God had a justified reason to vaporize him. But instead, God said to Paul, in essence, oh, missed the big shot. You're going to destroy the church by putting all the believers in prison, are you? I got an idea. I'm going to show you just how rich in mercy I am. I'm going to choose you, Paul, the Christian killer, the Christian hunter. I'm going to choose you, Paul, to plant more churches than anybody else in your generation. That's what I'm going to do. That is a ton of mercy. That is God being rich in mercy. Then look at what Paul says. We'll continue on this verse. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, this is kind of what I was talking about. That is a very clunky sentence. Because of his great love with which he loved us, it's hard to say even. It's stilted because that's not the best way to say it in English. But from this translation, that's the way the Greek gets translated. But I want to take a second to reread this phrase, and then I'll tell you why. Okay, so ready? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Because of his great love with which he loved us. This is an important phrase. 
Because it answers the question, God, why do you care about me? It answers the question, God, why would you listen to my prayers? It answers the question, God, why would you even give me a second chance? It answers the question, God, why would you even pay attention to me? Or God, what have I done to deserve your paying attention to me? And God answers those questions by saying this, there's nothing to do with you. Nothing at all to do with you. I care because of the great love with which I love you. It has everything to do with God's love for you and nothing to do with you. So let's do this one more thing. Now you see the word up there. It says he loved us. Change that to me because that's the essence of God's grace. So Paul is building this case. And if you're considering Christianity or trying to come back to your faith, this is central. When considering Christianity, it is important for you to understand how different Christianity is from the way that life works on earth. How different Christianity really is, possibly from the way you thought it worked. God loves us so much. God shows us so much mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, with which he loved me. That's why you don't have to negotiate with God. That's why you don't have to bargain with God. You don't have to bargain with God or negotiate with God because God doesn't want something from you. God wants something for you. So now we're going to put it all together. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings and transgressions. So is Paul saying God saved us before we did anything? Answer, Paul summarizes. Here's what he says in verse eight. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. Said a little bit differently, when you were separated from God, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved you, made you alive. When you were separated, God made you alive. It is by grace you have been saved. God chose to unseparate you because he wanted to unseparate you. All right? From there, Paul continues on. He clearly wanted to make sure that every person understood this radical teaching. This was unprecedented in the religious world. He's giving them a teaching they'd never heard of before. So having repeated the thing about grace and salvation, Paul makes a few more clarifying points. Here's what he says, still in verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, when Paul says through faith, he's taking us back to a familiar story. And it's familiar because we just talked about it a few weeks ago in this series, the story of Abraham. The way you experience God's saving grace is by a simple act of faith. Believe in God. That's how you experience it. When you acknowledge in faith that God loves you, when you acknowledge in faith that Christ died on the cross for your sin, when you acknowledge in faith that that actually is an expression of God's love, it's an expression of the love that, that God was giving a Messiah, a Christ to the world, and giving a Messiah, a Christ to you to pay for your sins, to make it possible for you to move from death, separated from God, to life, together with God. When you realize that, God's grace becomes a reality in your life. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then Paul adds this. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. All right? This is not of yourselves. It is the what of God? The gift of God. Let's try that again. It is the what of God? The gift of God. It's not a trade. It's not a trade. It's not a bargain. It's not a negotiation. It is a gift. And then just in case that wasn't crystal clear, Paul added this. Not a result of works. It's a gift. You didn't work for it. Do you get that? You didn't work for it. It's not as a result of works. God's grace is a gift that you didn't earn and you don't deserve. And Paul wants us to understand that God's grace is all about him. God's grace. God did not leverage your character and my character. God didn't leverage your good works and my good works. God didn't leverage your goodness and my goodness. God leveraged his own goodness to do something for you, to do something for me that we didn't deserve. We don't need to negotiate. We don't need to bargain. All we need to do is ask because God loves you. Now that's the theology part. Okay, now I want to look at the practical part. So based upon all of that and what we've just talked about, how how would you answer this question? What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? See, when you ask this question, there's really only two choices for your answer. The first thing is, what standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? Your behavior. Most of us here would tend to believe that the Bible tells us that our behavior has at least some impact has at least something to do with the way we stand before God. And the reason that we have that belief is because as Americans, and that includes North Americans, South Americans, Central Americans, as Europeans, as Western Europeans particularly, but even Eastern Europeans now, we have been marinating in this Judeo-Christian culture our whole lives. And as a result, because of osmosis, if you're around something long enough, it kind of seeps in. We know a little bit about Christianity in the Bible. We don't actually fully understand Christianity, and we don't have a comprehensive knowledge of the Bible. We know about Christianity in the Bible. See, our Western culture, we used to, by the way, call it Western civilization. They don't say that anymore. It's a very Christianized civilization. It's a very Christianized culture. Whether we realize it or not, we've been molded by this Christian culture, by this biblical Culture. So if I were to ask you, do you think you can be in good standing with God based upon your behavior... Thinking about what you know about Christianity and the Bible, you'd probably say, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, sounds about right. I have to behave, yeah. Now, if I asked you to name whatever particular behaviors or behavior you thought would do the trick, your answer would probably include some good behaviors that you're pretty sure are biblical. And if I said to you, where'd you get those answers from? You'd probably say, in the Bible. It's in there. I know it's in there somewhere. And that would lead to a problem. Because it isn't. You'll never find it. It's not in the Bible anywhere. And if that surprises you, you're not alone. Most people think the Ten Commandments would be the place to turn. We talked about the Ten Commandments before, right? Ten Commandments are given to a people who are already God's people. Not to a people who are trying to become God's people. They were already redeemed by God. They were already loved by God. So that's not a place to find your answer. Many people that would... Also say, well, okay, what about those red letters? You know how the Bible and the red letters, that's Jesus' words? What if I read Jesus' teachings? Will I find it there? Nope, you won't find it there either. 
Remember the standard that Jesus set for behavior in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember, you've heard it said, you know, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, if you have anger, you're murdering, right? Something like that, right? Jesus set that standard so high that nobody could live up to them. Nobody. It was on purpose. He said that. And if you turn to the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament for your answer, you'd, you'd find Paul. Paul's the guy we were just looking at who said your good standing with God is all about grace and not your works. So based upon all of that, you'd have to arrive at the conclusion that our culture is just wrong. And the Bible never, ever teaches about any of our works giving us favor with God. So what standard are you going to use to determine where you stand with God? Well, a lot of people nowadays would tell us, well, just use your common sense. You heard that one before? I don't need God. I have common sense. Professing believers in the public eye actually make that claim all the time, but there's fundamental problems with the common sense approach. First off, under a common sense approach, how would you be sure you've done enough, right? Using my common sense, I'm a good person, but how do you know if you're good enough? You'd never know. It's that easy. And not only that, common sense isn't really common. You figured that out? Common sense differs from culture to culture. Common sense differs from group to group, state to state, place to place. Under that standard, you're doomed too. Which brings us to the second choice, which is God's grace. Now, most of us, upon hearing that, go, oh, right, 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 right. God's grace determines where I stand with God. God's grace plus my behavior. Like, okay, got it. God's grace. I'm good with God, but now I got to behave myself. Most of us are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. God's grace is sufficient, but, but isn't it really a combination of God's grace plus me, plus me doing my part? I mean, I'm a Christian. I have, I have to be responsible, right? I got I to gotta pay my taxes and I, I got to vote. Oh, and I have to respect the environment and I have to be kind to other people. And, and of course, I, and these are the two people always say, I can't rob a bank. I can't murder anyone. So I, I know that. I can do those things. And if I do those things, then God takes care of the rest, right? And I'd ask, where'd you get that idea? Sadly, we got it from the church oftentimes. But the guy who wrote half the New Testament said this. This might sound familiar to you. And why don't you say it with me? It is by grace that we've been saved. Let's try it again. It is by grace that we've been saved. It is the what? The gift. The what? Grace. And grace is a gift. It's a gift. And just in case we don't understand what a gift is, it's not by works. It's not by what? It's not by works. That's what Paul believed. That's what Peter believed. That's what John believed. That's what the guys who followed Jesus believed. And they believed that's what Jesus came to demonstrate for us and to die for. So you're going to live your life trying to earn a right standing with God based on your behavior that you made up? That's sort of a fabrication from a spin-off of something that you thought was in the Bible, but you can't really find? Or perhaps are you starting to believe that God's grace is the answer? So what standard will you use to determine where you stand, in God, where you stand with God? What you do for you or what God has done for you? Remember this, and we'll wrap up. All of the world's religions are about D-O, do. All of the world's religions are about what can I do? God, let's negotiate. The ancients continually ask God, how many sheep do I need to kill? How many lambs? How many bulls? How many rams? How many animals do I need to kill 
to get you to help me win this war. Because the thought was the more animals we kill, the more enemies God will kill for us. God, how do I bribe you? God, how do I get your attention? God, how do I get you to rain in my crops? How do I get you to give me healthy children? How do I get you to give me a job? What do I have to do in order to get you interested in me? That's the world of religion. And on your best day, you don't know the answer. You'll never know the answer. Because nowhere on the planet is there a prescription for how good you have to be to get God to say, ah, well, that was good. Okay? Christianity is not about do. It's not about D-O. It is about done. D-O-N-E. Do versus done. Bill Hybels came up with this years ago. All the to-dos are a response to what God has, as Andy Stanley says, to done. Eh, that was funny. Do you know why Christians forgive? Because we've been forgiven. Do you know why Christians give? Because God gave. Do you know why Christians serve? Because we've been served. Do you know why we're kind to each other? Because God has been so kind to us. Do you know why we submit and surrender to one another and put other people before ourselves? Because at the cross, God put us first. I don't know what you've heard, but I am telling you, look in the New Testament and check me on this. Check this out. Do a fact check. All the to-dos in the Christian faith are a response to what God has already done. As Christians, we are called upon to live a life, not in order to gain God's acceptance, but because we already have it, but because God's already given it to us. Not in order to gain a right standing with God, but because God's given us a right standing. Our salvation was a gift from God And all of our to-do lists and all of our love and all of our service and all of our giving and all of our one anothering is not to please God. And it's not for us. It's always in response to what God has already done for us. It is by grace. You have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. The Old Testament pointed in this direction. And Jesus died and came back to make it a reality. Everybody after Jesus has looked back and said, it's because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection that we know that God loves us. And anything I do after that is a response and an expression of gratitude for all that God has done for me. We just say, in light of that kind of love, what else can we do? What else can we do but surrender our lives to our heavenly father? to our Savior, and to our God. God doesn't listen to and care for you because of anything you've done. God listens to you and he cares for you because of what he's done. And that is simply amazing. The reason we sing Amazing Grace is because God's grace is amazing. And the less amazing you've been, the more amazing God's grace is. The less likely it is that you would ever deserve that kind of grace, the more amazing it becomes for you. That's why the most gracious people you will ever meet are people who've tapped into the amazing grace of God. By grace, we are saved through faith. It is a gift of God. We'll no longer try to work, bargain, or negotiate for it. And that is too good to be true. But it's because that's how much God loves you. So as we wrap up, here's the question I want you to ponder as you leave here today. What's your, but what about, we always have one of those. When you think about God's unconditional grace, we always push back a little bit, but but, but wait a minute. 
if, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said this to me, you, but you don't know what I did. But you don't know what my past is. But you don't know what brought me here. You don't know how badly I've messed up. What's your, but what about? That's what we're going to pick up next week in week seven. I promise you this. It is going to be the most disturbing message in this series. In fact, the question at the end of next week's message will be, was that the most disturbing message in this series to you? That's how disturbing it's going to be. Okay? So come back next week and we'll all be disturbed together. All right? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that the things we've seen today will be liberating for all of us. That we stop negotiating. That we recognize that you are the perfect Heavenly Father who wants good things for our children just because. Just because of you. If we'll just ask and then trust you. So Father, wherever we are and wherever this message lands with us, give us the wisdom to know what to do and then the courage to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.